I'm Marianne Scott, and it's an honour to introduce the podcast featuring Dame Joy Carley. This interview between Deborah Shepherd and Joy Carley took place in 2015, and it's impressive for the gentle wisdom and good humour that Joy imparts. My sister is related to Joy through marriage, and 25 years ago, I was lucky enough to spend a weekend at Joy and Terry's home in Fish Bay in the Marlborough Sounds with my sister and our two then 12-year-old children. To be in the hub of Joy's writing and researching room, to witness her work ethic and to see the books lined up on her shelves was humbling and life-changing. Her evident pleasure in writing and interacting with children was also something special. Joy let our children rearrange the books in her writing room. They were busy for hours, assembling their own complicated Dewey system, which involved height and colour. She never interfered and thanked them sincerely for their work. Later, we all went out on Mrs Wishy Washy and at low tide we collected oysters off the rocks to shuck back at her house. Her kitchen was relaxed and welcoming, with Joy's personality peaking and bursting from the benches, the flowers, the rugs, her abundance of good food and signs of industry. In her book, Writing from the Heart, Joy says, making stories has been like breathing. So just for a while, We can share some of the air Joy has breathed by listening as she candidly discusses the hard times and the many highlights of her life in this podcast. Tēnā I'm Karen Hay. Dame Joy Cowley is one of New Zealand's most loved and recognised authors, having published over 600 titles for children and adults. Her Mrs Wishy Washy series alone has sold over 40 million copies worldwide. In her own quiet way, Joy has been a long-time New Zealand Society of Authors member and supporter of authors in Aotearoa. In 2015, Deborah Shepherd interviewed Joy and asked for the story behind her first children's book, The Duck and the Gun. There had been a very small... Um, news item about a a building site somewhere in Chicago a duck had laid uh, her eggs in some of the building materials and they stopped work until the eggs hatched and the duck could be removed and at that time of course the Vietnam War was on and that was my Vietnam War protest Mm -hmm. so so just very briefly that the story of the duck and the gun just in a nutshell the story was set um, actually back about 200 years when a general and his army are going to attack a town and they've only got one gun, a cannon, and it's levelled at the town and they're ready to attack when the gunner comes back and says, can't fire the gun, a duck's made a nest in it. And they eventually decide that the only thing they can do is wait for three weeks until the eggs hatch and the the duck can be removed because the duck refuses to come out. Mm. And then the general has to take a white flag and go into the town and explain to the mayor of the town that that, 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 that will be postponed. 
And then he says, I, I'm like, you, you would, couldn't lend us a garden, could you? And, <laughs> and the mayor of the town said, no, no, we can't possibly do that. And how would that work? And, and uh, he said, well, well, you could fire at us and then we could take the gun and fire at you. But no, no, that wasn't going to work. However, they, the men actually in the army are very pleased that the duck is in the gun and they put bread down the gun uh, when they can. And in the meantime, the general keeps going over to the town because the, um, or it's the prime minister actually, not the mayor, the prime minister's daughter is rather attractive. Finally, the um, duck hatches and out comes the duck and the ducklings. And the men are saying, hooray, now we can have a war. And then they, they have been actually working painting the town. Hmm. And uh, they decide, oh, no, they can't blow up freshly painted houses. And the general thinks, no, no, he, there's the prime minister's daughter. <laughs> so they have a wedding instead of a war. No. Just about the success of that book. That was published by Doubleday. It was published by Doubleday originally. In 1969, was it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's success. Well, it's it's sold in England. It's sold in Canada, and it's been translated to Spanish in South America. And it came back here eventually. It went out of print, and and it got the rights back. And Robin Belton did very beautiful illustrations mm. for it. Mm. And it's still in print. Hmm. So the books that you were reading, because you said in your Janet Frame Memorial Lecture, nowhere did I find my own country. And I was of the opinion we were unworthy of books. Yes. So the books that you were reading, when you, when you finally the books discovered were, the you know, Reading um, books set in England. Fairy tales. There was something about woods and spinneys and copses which was so so much more elegant mm -hmm. than bush and paddocks. Yes. <laughs> you know, and there was something inferior about being a Kiwi because we didn't appear in any of our books. We didn't. And it's so important that children see themselves in their books. Yes. And, and your that, whole life has been about... Yeah, about children that. seeing themselves. Yeah. And that's why that a big part of um, the writing and recycling the income from writing was going around the world to places which people didn't have their own books and running writing workshops. With teachers or with people interested in writing with for children? people interested in writing, and very often there were a lot of teachers amongst them, and because they may not um, have any experience of writing or writing creatively, the writing workshops were done by getting them to tell their own stories, right. stories of their childhood. And we've got lovely stories mm -hmm. from people. Mm -hmm. We chose the positive stories, the ones were appropriate. Yep. Um, they were edited. And I did the editing and the illustration notes because both illustrator and author are under the same constraint, making meaning for children. Mm -hmm. And the authors could do what they liked with the original story, but the edited ones would go in at a certain level in a, a reading series. 
who did this in South Africa and right through uh, Asia um, are workshops in Borneo workshops in Iceland. Yes, because they were using Swedish That's right. books in schools. Yeah. How were they reproduced for the children? Were they were they pub- published or they were published? Now, in out out of um, South Africa, all well, the the stories there were they weren't actually published as such, but there was a a, a group of people called they call themselves Read R E A D. And while that was an acronym, I, I can't remember what it stood for, but they had black and white drawings photocopied and they looked reasonably good. And they went out to schools which did not have a book mm. of any kind in them. Mm. And they were their own stories. Mm, stories of the problems children had to go out and collect water for their families. Mm. Stories of leaving home at six o'clock in the morning to walk to school. Mm and school being under a tree yeah. with just a blackboard. So what are the ingredients of a successful story? Let's start with a story for a child who's learning to read. The story must be about the child's learning, not the teacher's teaching. Mm-hmm. Does that, yes. that make sense? You know what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that I'm denigrating teachers in any way, but very often... At a higher level, it's the teacher's teaching that's all important. Well, no, it's the child's learning. And children have different stages of learning within the same age group. Some children are not ready to reading until they're seven. I really appreciate the Steiner way of that where children mm-hmm. don't come to reading until mm-hmm. they're seven because they just don't have the coordination to do that. And children can be switched off. I was probably one of those children. Also, to realise that strongly auditory children respond well to a phonics system, but children who are strongly visual don't. The skills, what they call the skills and drills, are important, but within the context of meaning. Meaning is a big word. Mm -hmm. The story must have meaning. I had four children before I was 25, (laughs) so I had these four delicious little babies. Um, They were wonderful. We had stories all the time. Um, We made up stories about the ordinary things in the house. We had a wootle bird in the chimney that used to whistle when the wind blew. And and the children invented a tiger in the bathroom that used to put the toilet paper and the towels in the bath water. We had one of those. Um, About the the cows, because you you milked cows. We were about calves and... Well, yes, the farm, the seasons. We had the stories on the farm, um, but you know these stories didn't work for Edward, and I didn't mm. realise that he was a different kind, had a different kind of brain learning than these th- other three who were very creative. So I'd be reading to them at night, and I'd be reading Charlotte's Web, for example, and Edward would be playing with his trucks on the floor, and he'd say, that's not true, animals don't talk. <laughs> and the others would sort of roll their eyes. <laughs> and they're all in. Um, so he fell behind because he, had, he was sandwiched between two sisters who started to read before they started school. They just had an appetite for it. 
and, and was surrounded by books. He, we used to go to the library every Friday night and he would choose books about volcanoes or trains or bridges or whatever. Mm. And he thought that when he started school, he'd be able to read these for himself and that didn't happen. So he decided he wasn't going to compete. And that, that, was, that was that. And so the, the teacher called me in and she will need to do something about Edward. She went, I think you could do this, you could write for him. And that's what I, I did. So what did you write for him? Um, I got him to tell me stories. Right. I got him to tell me stories about what he would like to do with the farm if it was his farm and he was running it. And what he would do when he was old enough to drive the tractor. You know, and and he had no, no problem with telling me stories that he could relate to. Mm -hmm. And I'd write them down. Mm -hmm. But I did the same with other children because it, there was no point in presenting them with a book. You know, their elbows would go in and they'd get that glazed look and they'd avoid eye contact. They had met failure too many times and they weren't going to put themselves at risk. Mm -hmm. So we'd start with story talk. You know, if you could have any kind of birthday party you wanted, what would it be like? And I'd keep asking the questions yes. so to bring out the detail. Yeah. And I had an, an Olivetti manual typewriter in those days, and I'd have paper in with carbon paper, and I'd type out the story as they told it to me, but I'd put it in the third person. I'd put their name in the title, so it'd be yeah. their story all mm -hmm. the way through. And then they would take it home. They couldn't read it, of course, but the idea was that their parents would read it to them. And all oh, the parents just got sick of it. They had to read it every... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how often they had to read it, but they had to read it off, I know, because they told me. Um, and But that was the child's own story. The child was the author and the authority. Mm. I always say to me, you're not author and authority. Just mm. think of the way those words are connected. And when they came back the next time, I would have just little bits of paper. I'd, I'd you know, paper like this would, uh, when in front of us, would be folded over four times mm -hmm. and stapled into a book. Mm -hmm. I would do little drawings for illustration, right. quite simple, quite basic, and simplify the text mm. using the vocab that I thought would be about right. And that was where the teacher had come in. She'd given me the old Dolsch word list. I mean, this is pretty special that the teacher trusted you to do this and was mm. encouraged you to do she it. She gave me all the encouragement. Who was this teacher? Uh, her name was um, Mrs. Thorley. Mrs. Thorley. She was an English teacher from England, and she was teaching at this little country school. And the kids loved her. And she, was a, she would be probably in, in her 60s. Right. So she had a lot of experience. And she was very wise. Yes. Mm. Weren't you lucky? Because not all teachers would invite you in to do that. They? Well, I wasn't doing it in the school. I was doing it in um, at home. Yes. And the children were coming in. But she recommended to the parents that, because Edward came, came right. Yes. Mm. So you, you were almost like being reading recovery teacher, were you? Well, yeah, well I didn't think of it that, mm. that way. Mm. It just worked for Edward and it worked for these other children mm. who mm. they could not 
um, work in the classroom situation because there's, there's competition. Other kids could do yes. so much better than yes. they could. They weren't going to try. Wanting to be a writer, when did that start? Well, it, it wasn't me thinking, I want to be a writer. It was writing was just something I did. You know, wanting to be a writer, well, it's like wanting to be a breather. You know, I just wanted, I, I lived stories. Mm-hmm. And talk about gender roles. Well, I didn't really identify with girls my own age who were so interested in clothes and film stars and Makeup. all the rest of the stuff. Um, you know, I felt very alien from all of that. Yeah. Because I had a rich inner life. Life of the imagination. Mm-hmm. And also, my life was concerned with practical things, hands-on. So, um, I don't think I identified with girls or boys when I was growing up. And I didn't think in terms of gender. Mm. Mm. In fact, I really didn't discover myself as a woman until I became pregnant, and that was wonderful. Oh. I just love being pregnant. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, and then raising mm. those children. You said you. The, the key thing for a parent is that to make sure they really enjoy their children. Of course. Just before we break, could we have the story of your first novel, Nest in a Falling Tree, and how that's an, it's a fairy tale story, so I would like you to tell it starting with the short story, The Silk, and its publication. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I had never considered writing a novel, but I'd had a number of short stories published in The Listener and one in Landfall. Um, but both The Landfall story and the, the Silk and The Listener were reprinted in a magazine called Short Story International. And a New York editor... And this was published in the States, this journal. The, yes, yes. This, uh, Short Story International was mm. published in the States and... I, I, and it, I think it went in most English-speaking countries mm. because it was certainly out here in New Zealand. And they only published reprinted stories. They didn't right. publish a, original material. A, a copy of this was picked up by... Just a quick question. Who sent it then to Short Story International? I did. You did? Yes. Mm-hmm. Because they were advertising right. for um, stories. And they, they gave it... A, some idea of the sort of stories they wanted. And I had, first of all, the Landfall story was reprinted, and then the Silk. And the one that the Silk was in was picked up in Grand Central Station, New York, by Anne Hutchins, an editor with Doubleday. And she wrote a a beautiful letter. By beautiful, I mean on beautiful paper and beautiful envelope, not the sort of paper I use. Very stylish. Do you have a novel? And you at this time are living on a farm, milking cows, raising poor children. That's right. In the Manawatu. Is it the Manawatu? Yes, the Manawatu, just out of Palmerston North. Yeah. And, and of course, I'm still at the stage of thinking that... um, I had come to fulfilment in writing short stories for the listener. Because I thought if I got one short story published in the listener, I'd die happy. Um, and I'd had, at this stage, maybe a dozen published. 
What were these stories about? Um, they were just sort of gentle, everyday stories uh, about people always and um, about some of the problems that people face and how... Um, I think they were always there is something which triggers a story. Mm-hmm. There will be some incident, a phrase, something read, something seen that is meaningful and it goes to a deeper place. And once one idea comes, it's magnetic, it collects other ideas mm-hmm. and, the, and a story seems to build itself. Mm-hmm. So that's how they work. Um, the silk, I thought, came simply from Blue Willow pattern, which I loved when I was a child, a little girl. I used to look at that pattern over and over. And You had it in your house? Well, my grandmother had it, and she used to explain the story about it. And I thought it was genuinely Chinese. It wasn't, of course, but it didn't matter. So there was that, and where the rest of the story came from, I didn't know, which was interesting because when Malcolm was dying, we lived through that. Mm-hmm. You know, all the details mm-hmm. were there, and he remarked, kept remarking on it too. And the silk was the dressing gown, or the the, the garment, dress, the dressing gown. Um, when we were engaged, I bought him a Hardy Amy's dressing gown. I put it in Palmerston North, and that was a present for him. And I thought it was nylon, because in those days everything was made of nylon. There was flocked nylon, in it, and it was in a light blue and navy blue, and it, was, and it had a, a delicate pattern. It was light, and it was beautiful. And he really didn't wear it much. He'd put it on a couple of times, but for him it was precious. Um, and when he was dying, he said he wanted to wear that in his coffin and he said it'll be like the laying out pyjamas and the silk Mm. and then you discovered it was silk well discovered it was silk and I didn't know I thought it was like and there was a tag inside 100% pure silk so back to the silk and uh, Anne Hutchins writing to you is there a novel do you have a novel (laughs) well um what would you do if uh, an American publisher wrote to you and said, do you have a novel? Um, I said, spoke, said truthfully, I'm thinking about it. And I was at the moment I wrote it. But two days later, I thought, no, 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 I can't do this at all. Um, and then six months later, back came another letter from her. How is that novel coming along? So I sat down, wrote a long, short story, which I thought could be the first chapter of a novel, sent it to her. It was accepted, and I got half the advance royalty. How much was that? Um, it was about 2000 US dollars. And it was quite a lot in those days. And this days. is 1967, yes, or right. was it? Because it was published in 68. Yeah. Wow. And, the, and That would be a fortune. Oh, it was a lot of money, yes. I mean, this is when, you know, you sell a short story, maybe $100. <laughs> so that was a lot of money. And I used the money to have a woman come and live in, a very nice woman. She lived in, helped with the children, looked after the house, and I sat and wrote. That's not falling true. Perfect. And I didn't know where the story actually came from. Well, I 
I feel as though that, that story has the feeling it's been written in a dream. It's a, it, it's, it's such a perfect story. It's, it's a clever story. It's compelling. You just read on and on. And I'm thinking, how did you come up with this? First up, your first novel, which feels so perfect. Well, I suppose it was a dream in a way. But the interesting thing, what I really was doing was I was writing about what was going to happen very soon, the pending breakup and the marriage. Now, to tell you something interesting, mm -hmm. if, you, if you think of the characters in the silk, mm -hmm. and I, I did say to you that I'd been to a marriage guidance counsellor. That was me pushing a panic button when this um, girl mm -hmm. came along and, and I saw that Ted was really serious about this. And trying to save the marriage, well, Ted came with me two or three times and then wouldn't go again. But I kept going. I needed that. And one of the things, first things we did, the marriage guidance counsellor gave us personality tests. Oh, something very long and profound with about 300 questions that had to be answered. Mm -hmm. My emotional social age was 40 and Ted was 18. Hmm. Now, isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. The character in that book yep. was in the early 40s. Mm -hmm. And the boy was 18. That's right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is a whole yeah, lot see it now. going it's on that we, we just don't pick up intellectually. Because mm. oh, that that's what I was writing yeah. about. I didn't know it. It just kept coming. Kept because coming. The, the woman in it is, she's so giving and he is not, and he ex exploits her. But she's also very ignorant. I call it innocent, but innocence is another name for ignorance. Um, and she tries, sees him not as he is, but as she wants to see mm -hmm. him. True. Mm. And the mother figure in that? Who oh, dies? my background, my parents, my that whole background. Mm. So then, we'll stop, I think, but so from there, there were four more books that Doubleday Well, Doubleday, you know, wanted they, um, more, 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 and... Um, the Mandrake Root of Men and Angels. Uh, Man the of Straw, Mandrake Root of Men and Angels. And the Growing then, Season. The Growing four. Season. Yes. But by the time I was doing this, I was also getting very involved in writing for early reading. Yes. Just one other quick thing. You referred to these books as, as therapy writing and the genre is part of our national literary tradition of the bleak book. And I thought, well, maybe you're being a wee bit hard on yourself there saying that oh, about these I books. Think, yeah. There's not much humour in them. No, but there is tenderness, there's mm. love, and they're beautifully written and they're very evocative. Well, They're some people stories. can do that on a grand scale, and I still think it's therapy writing. I mean, Carrie Hume, The Bone People. Yes. It, it's tender, it's beautiful, it's extraordinary. But I still think it's therapy writing. I but is there a problem with that? No, there's not a problem with it. But I think that there is a problem if we're writing for children and we're saying, oh, you poor thing, I feel so sorry for you. Um, and actually, you're feeling sorry for yourself as you're writing. 
And I do see some very bleak books written for children, especially for young adults. Now, the teen years are it's a roller coaster of emotions, but great highs and great lows. Mm. And I don't know of any um, ch- depressed teenager who wants to read about depressed teenagers. Mm-hmm. No. Well, only if there's With hope in the story. Mainly they want laughter. Mm-hmm. They want laughter. I know when I was certainly when in depression, um, over the marriage breakup. That's what I craved. I craved laughter the way a dog will eat grass, you know, it's a mimetic. Laughter was the emetic. And lightness. Mm. And fun. I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but we want to remind you about the important work NZSA does for all New Zealand writers through advocacy, professional development programs, information, competitions, awards, mentorships and advisory and consultancy services. NZSA is the professional organisation for New Zealand writers. It lobbies for fair reward for your work and for the protection of your copyright. Visit authors.org.nz to find out more about joining. Dame Joy Cowley has always advocated for young readers to be taken seriously. During their 2015 discussion, Deborah asked Joy why there still seems to be a lack of male authors writing for young children in New Zealand. Because they want to write for adults, probably. And a few are writing for children, but not enough. And especially at the lower end, where children are what boys are wanting... Mm. Either fiction based on non-fiction or non-fiction. Mm-hmm. And if they want a, um, a story about a car race, they don't want to know about the red car and the blue car and the green car and the green car wins. They want to know about what kind of tyres they've got, um, what shape of the car, the aerofoil sections. Um, they just want to know some mechanical details. And I suppose women could go and find out, but these are women authors who just don't know a thing about racing cars. And there has been that slight attitude towards children's literature didn't rate in the way that adult literature, and in fact that bringing us to the New Zealand Society of Authors, and when I asked you yesterday about whether you'd been involved in um, any campaigns, and you said, well, there was the one to get the children's like choice award established. Yeah. I didn't camp- I wanted children to be part of the panel of judges but that was the, their right. option that they chose and it's a good one but very often the Children's Choice Award is not it's very rare for that to coincide with one of the award winners chosen by adults mm. but the perception must have changed significantly towards children's literature given the international success that you have had that Margaret Mahi has had oh yes it has changed it has changed, and I think possibly part of that change is that 
it's lucrative. Yes. Or seen as lucrative. There was a time when New Zealand was, uh, and Murray Clay was part, part of all of this too, that New Zealand was seen um, as being the place for early reading programs. And in one year, the sale of children, New Zealand children's books was export, they exported, was much more than the export of wine. Wouldn't be so now, of course, but there was a year in which this made, was of note in the newspapers. So, yes, but you know, New Zealand's quite an extraordinary country for such a small population. I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I've been talking there at the um, education faculty. And after the talk, a man came up to me and said that he, he was part of the faculty, and he said that he wanted to um, come to New Zealand to see what made New Zealanders so special. And I asked him what he meant, and he said, if you take any endeavour in the world, be it medicine, sport, music, literature, whatever, choose the top ten names in that endeavour, and one of those names will be a New Zealander. And my reaction was, no, 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 no. You know, sometimes people exaggerate. But I went away and thought about it. And if you spend some time thinking about it, you think he's probably right. I Well, I thought about that, and I thought there were a number of factors. Um, isolation, mm-hmm. a small population. But I think the biggest factor is our education system. It encourages independence. It encourages children to realise their individual potential. And none of those things are admired in other countries that I in. Really? You'd be in the best well, position to judge. Well, in, in America, um, individualism is not admired. Conformity, politeness, patriotism, patriotism obedience, they are the four great virtues in the classroom. Aren't we lucky then? Yeah, we are. You know, and, and we get a bit negative about teaching in New Zealand, and we shouldn't be. Mm. We should be giving it a, a lot more support and a lot more money, actually. I had a question about your life and political movements in New Zealand. You said yesterday that you weren't um, you weren't very political. No, I'm not. And I, so I was asking, I'd asked about feminism and your female characters and has that been something conscious or is it I don't know and have they evolved over time these characters well, I'm so it was Mrs. Wishy-Washy to start yeah, with yeah I suppose I didn't think of it in, in that way and because I've been in areas of work which tend to be masculine and always have been accepted I haven't been anywhere aware of gender opposition, although I see it in effect. You know, the fact that I was the only girl in a pharmacy class. Mm. Mm. Was it? Mm. it? You haven't come up against no. barriers. I have not personally come mm. against barriers. Mm. Apart from the barriers put to me by women who who have said to me things like, in my day, a woman wouldn't be, it would be too much of a lady to milk cows. That was given to me. 
once, and criticism for having a motorbike. It was very. I couldn't afford Flying. a car. It was very practical. Flying. Flying. Yeah. yeah. And then being a world published author. Attitudes to that. Um, no, I didn't have any attitudes to that, but it was usually about the way I dressed, which is just sloppy me. And, and it was interesting when I'd go, go to the States and I'd be going to give a talk somewhere, one of the right group reps would be hosting me and she'd say, she'd say hopefully, would you like to go shopping? <laughs> I hate shopping. <laughs> I'd say no. And she sort of brushed me down occasionally. You know, sometimes clothes are important to people. Well, me, they're important to, for warmth. Yes. Um, anything more here about the New Zealand Society of Authors? Um, you've been a member, but not particularly attended lots. No, I it haven't. Hasn't, because it hasn't really provided you with what you've needed? No, it's not that. It's I've been... Just too busy. busy. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in when I've always been writing, my writing, nearly all of my writing has been commissioned. I've never sent something out into the blue except the silent one, those th- three publishers. One in England, one in America, and one in um, New Zealand. who all rejected it. So that's the only time I've actually submitted stuff. That's just I've been amazing. asked for it. Isn't it? Yes, it is amazing. I didn't think it was amazing. I just thought it was the way people worked. Mm. But always I've been busy. So you haven't really needed a, a, a society to advocate for you as a writer because you've just had the opportunities. I've, I've, you've grasped I've never them. needed to apply to... Um, Creative New Zealand or the previous to for any money because I've always had it. Yeah. And I've never needed to look for a place to go. Uh, once had Fish Bay. long ago, I've had Fish Bay. I've always had a place mm-hmm. to write. And I've Sorry. been able to support. Yes. I've been able to support us. Um, long ago, I did apply for the Burns Fellowship. That was when I was just in this lonely, lost space. Mm-hmm. And I had another another novel to write. And struggling, I was working half days in a pharmacy, but just feeling the, the world was on top of me. Is this here in Wellington? or No, in Palmerston. Palmerston North. North, yeah. And this would have been 1969, I guess. And it was after that um, near-death experience. Yes. So it was it was a year after, and, and I was had a novel to write, and I also had to earn money to pay rent. And, and I thought Burns Fellowship was advertised, and I did apply for it, and I got a very nice letter back saying that Ted Middleton would be getting it because he was going blind, and I thought that was a very good decision. But that's the only time I've applied. Mm-hmm. But I ha- there's a funny note to that. When you apply for the Burns Fellowship, or then, you needed to have a referee. I didn't know what a referee was, apart from football matches. <laughs> so I asked a friend at Massey, and he said, oh, you need to get someone who, um, of standing. 
And he says, someone like Frank Sargeson. So I wrote to Frank Sargeson, asked if he'd be my referee, and I got this letter back. It was one sentence, and it was lovely. He says, Dear Joy Cowley, I do not know you. Yours sincerely, Frank Sargeson. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't it funny? I kept it because it was lovely. Mm. (laughs) Have there been any moments of opportunity that you haven't grasped? No. Once when I was in that same lonely space, I got a smudgy typed letter, and I would obviously typed it on a manual typewriter and bits um, inked in, um, from someone who, a, a man called, someone Clemens, who claimed to be um, a nephew of Mark Twain. And because of the of Nest in a Falling Tree, I was to be made an honorary member of the Mark Twain Society. So I I was feeling lonely and sorry for myself, and I said, thank you very much for this honour. I've always admired Mark Twain. I said, had I been born in a different time, in a different era, I would have preferred to have been his mistress. (laughs) And I sent back this tongue-in-cheek, thinking this is a lot of nonsense. It's a reputable society, and they printed my... In their in their booklet, which was a bit embarrassing, <laughs> sent me a copy. So the, no, that that made me a little cautious about what I had, what I wrote after a glass of wine. It's not like you missed out on something major, though, is it? No. no. <laughs> Just that your publishing history, um, the early years, amazing, and then that period with, with Wendy Pye, uh, and. Then now today, um, you have the Gecko Press that that publishes has published your recent. Julia Marshall puts out very beautiful mm. books. Mm. Um, I used to work with Penguin because um, I had such a good editor there, and, she, and then she retired. And then Julia appeared on the scene and asked if I had anything. And I did have a collection of stories called Snake and Lizard. Yes, and. She published that. But I was impressed with the works. They're very good publishers. They're very good on design Mm, and quality paper. Mm. So I've stayed there. So that's great. And what about the future of books in the digital age? What do you think? I don't know, but people get very worried about change. I think things will sort themselves out. I don't think books will go out of fashion. I can remember my parents being very upset by radio because it said it was going to kill family life. Mm-hmm. Instead of standing around the piano and singing or mm-hmm. uh, sitting around and talking in the evenings, um, people would be listening to the radio. Well, that was their worry. Mm. This question about writing in the circadian rhythm, how long it takes to recover from a project, is that is that relevant for you? Do you need to have times in between to... Mm, yes, I do. Um, I always say to people that writer's block is actually flat batteries. Go away and rest. It's about having to have that peak energy. Two weeks away from it at least. No, 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 right. Just don't look at the at writing. Mm. And get lots of sleep and enjoy life. But do you get like a bit of a craving if you're away from it for too long? No, I, um, 
um, I know when it's time because the silence starts. It starts with a silence and then that silence starts to move and then the movement starts shaping words, interior words. And I'm, and, and it's, it's like an energy, it's an, like an electricity that's in within me. But that comes out of good energy. I can't do that if I'm tired. Or perturbed or perplexed. Yes, or... if, I, if I'm, um, my head is somewhere else. That I've got a, some problem in life that I've got to deal with. Mm. That, that that doesn't work. Mm. For me, writing is not um, an actual escape. If there is something I've got to deal with, I do have to deal with it first, and then I can write. But I can't write to get away from a situation. It's never been like that. Mm. Um, shifting priorities. As you get older? Life gets simpler. Um, they're all short-term, because at this stage of life you don't make any long-term plans. And the priorities are, are about being aware of the changes, anticipating changes that are going to come, and they come more frequently as you get older, making allowances for them. How does it feel being the subject of a biographical inquiry like this? Um, fairly neutral, actually, because I've had lots and lots of yes. interviews. And, yeah. yeah. And I always like talking to people. Yeah. I get lots of people just stopping on the road and calling in. Very often they're people who have left some religious path and they just want to talk about a more open spirituality. Mm. Do you have a, a sense of satisfaction looking back over your life at what you've done along the way? I think it all has been lovely. Mm. <laughs> and thinking of the hard parts has been very necessary. Yeah. Was writing the memoir useful? I, lo- I enjoyed writing it because I enjoyed the richness of all ex- experience. Did you discover things about yourself through writing it that you hadn't quite thought of before? Um, well, yes, I did. I recognised things that I probably knew in a head way, but I, I didn't. My body didn't really know, and that's the importance of the sea to me. Right. Yeah. This is right on the sea. This building, mm. and um, mm. and I feel dry in Featherston. I've got the garden, and I've got my shed, but. Uh, Going down to the sounds, duh. the first thing I will do is go down to the beach and wade in. You said in that final section, in going to see, as we get older, the world becomes more beautiful. It does, yes. Because we get slower, I think. We've got time to appreciate it. I think we also grow beyond divisions. That in some way that we can't explain what the old divisions disappear and we see this movement, it's almost a Jungian movement of shadow and light. It's only light that gives shadows. And that the darkness serves the light in our lives.
You've been listening to an interview from 2015 between author Dame Joy Cowley and Deborah Shepherd. For more New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcasts, subscribe on SoundCloud or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod with audio support by Yana Tanahu Owen for the New Zealand Society of Authors. NZSA would like to thank the Southern Trust for funding this season. Noturno by Ottorino Respigi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Kakite anō.